Well, we are blessed in America, aren't we? Amen, exactly. We are blessed to have uh, plenty, uh, abundance of entertainment. And in, in fact, the entertainment industry pulls from society, pulls from our wants, our desires, our interests, and it turns them into an artistic medium and feeds that back for us to consume. We'll see things like, hung, uh, like love and hate and anger, and, and we feel those emotions as those things are captured. Well, hunger is no different from that. It actually makes the list. With titles like Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran. Don't judge me. I know that's from the 80s. Hungry by several bands, actually. White Lion, Cutlass, Jeremy Camp, Mercy Me, and Eric Clapton. We Are Hungry by the Matt Goss Band, It also extends to reality TV, like Survivor, Ultimate Survival Alaska, where people are put to the test on many fronts, not the least of which is hunger and thirst. Well, one of those shows was called Man vs. Wild. You may have heard of it. Propelled a man named Bear Grylls to fame, former former special forces to the United Kingdom turned TV star. His latest program is called The Island, where 14 complete strangers Folks like you and me, with no ordinary skills, no special skills, are dropped off on a deserted island in the South Pacific with one goal, to survive for six weeks with only what they have on their backs. They must find food, water, shelter to survive this 40 days by themselves. They're given a one-day lesson with Bear for survival essentials before being dropped off on the island. And he taught them they can survive. He gave the rule of three. He can, you can survive three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food. He taught them how to start fires by friction, as that would be the only means they would have for any warmth, cooking, or more importantly, to purify water to drink, of which they would need one to four quarts per person per day. Well, season two includes two teams, a men's team and a ladies' team. And the point was to see if there's any significant difference between how the two teams fared during this six-week escapade. Well, in the ladies' camp, they struggled getting started. They ran out of water and went without for nearly three days, bringing the urgency level to critical. They finally found water on the third day and were able to address that need. However, their success was short-lived because they quickly faced hunger, now having satisfied this first need. The ladies were living on about 50 calories per day. Then they started hunting for any nutrition they could find, anything to stave off the ravenous, their ravenous bellies because it was driving them at this point. And during one such outing, they happened upon a couple of baby piglets wandering around the jungle. Well, the ladies as a whole took to the piglets as pets, if you can imagine that. <laughs> they even named the piglets Sage and Onion. I think I'd have been worried if I were the piglets at that point. (laughs) At first, the piglets ran from the ladies' advances. However, as the ladies returned to camp that night, strolling right behind them was sage and onion. They quickly warmed up to the ladies, allowing them to be held and carried around like babies in their arms. It's crazy. As the ladies huddled together to sleep at night, right amongst them was sage and onion. By day 10, the ladies had gotten very hungry. 
They had been gathering handfuls of almonds, coconuts, and some yucca plants, but they were still at this point only consuming about 200 calories a day, far less than was needed. One had to leave the island because she just couldn't keep warm any longer. Another had gotten so weak from malnutrition, she lost her ability to participate in the work and, and really just slept most of the time. Desperation was becoming the shared motivator. They needed food, and they needed it desperately. We'll be back for the rest of the story later. I'm going to welcome Pam Williams to read our scripture for the day as I walk through the, uh, the agenda. So we're going to talk about Israel in the wilderness. Then we're going to talk about Jesus in the wilderness and how both of them faced similar circumstances. Then we're going to talk about our call to action versus apathy, the call to inaction. Thank you, Pam. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And from Matthew 4, 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry of fasting. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Thank you, Pam. Mm-hmm. That's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we just humble ourselves before you. And we thank you for the gathering today and just ask for your presence to be a part of us. And Lord, we ask you to help us to hunger for you. Uh, teach us to long after you and pursue you with everything that we have, Lord. So pray that your spirit's here today. Would you um, work in and through each one of us as we interact with the world around us and as we continue to live out our lives, Lord. And so I pray that you uh, speak through me and that, Lord, that your words, you would put your words in my mouth and that you would prevent me from putting my words in your mouth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Israel in the wilderness, let me introduce you to the ancient Israelites. So I'm starting at the point where they are in Egypt and they are enslaved. And so you can see from the map here, kind of center, center bottom, uh, the Israelites were in Egypt, which seems kind of strange because we know that they were given a specific land. And so this is the first time, and really the only time that I'm aware of, that we have a nation without a land and without a law which is kind of interesting. 
So let me back up just a little bit from this point forward here. So, uh, I'm sorry, first, the, the, they were enslaved in Egypt, and life is hard. It's very difficult, and they have a yearning now to get out of that. So let me back up a little bit to tell you how they got there. And so I'm going to start back in Genesis 12. We meet a man named Abraham. And Abraham was promised by God a land, a people, and a worldwide blessing. And so Abraham, to make this go a little quickly here, so Abraham has a son, Isaac. He has a son named Jacob. And Jacob is renamed Israel. And so when we're talking about this nation of Israel, we're really talking about Jacob and his family, his sons. And so his family became the tribes of Israel. Well, one of those sons named Joseph uh, was sold into slavery out of jealousy. And so he ends up being sold down to Egypt. He goes to Egypt. Well, he, he was given a gift by God to be able to interpret dreams. Well, through a series of circumstances, the, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, had a dream, and nobody in all of Egypt could interpret it. And so they brought uh, Joseph up to, to the king, and he interprets the dream. And the dream says, there's going to be seven years of plenty, where all the crops will be in abundance, all the livestock will be in abundance, we'll have an abundance of food. But then after that seven years, we're going to have a seven-year famine, where everything is going to be in short supply. Well, the king, impressed by this, and understanding that Joseph was given great wisdom, put him in charge, number two, under the king. He was in charge of all of Egypt with the responsibility of gathering the food during the time of plenty and doling it out during the time of need. Well, he did that, and through, and the, uh, the famine did come. So they had seven years of plenty, the, the famine did come. Well, the famine didn't just affect Egypt, it affected this whole region, so everything you see on the map there was affected by this famine. Well, because of that, there was great hunger because there was no food. And so through a series of events, Joseph's family comes down to Egypt from the Israel, from the, the darker green area, kind of on the right, which is about 500 miles. So imagine yourself here, York, Pennsylvania, no food. We don't have gas for cars, or we don't have cars, we don't have airplanes, but we hear that there's food in Maine, or we hear that there's food in Myrtle Beach. That's about how far it would be for you to have to walk to get this. And so they had to take what they needed and go down to that distance. And so they were reunited, and because of what Joseph had done, the king invited Joseph's whole family to come down and stay in the land of Egypt, in the best part of it. And so that's the land of Goshen, which you see kind of in the center right a little bit, the dark green area. That dark green area is where the Israelites were allowed to live because of what Joseph had done. And so these 70 people come down and they live in Egypt and the best part of it. And we get to the end of Genesis and everything looks good. So this lineage, this family from Abraham to Israel and, and Joseph looks pretty good. And so we're going to pick up in Exodus, in Exodus 1, and I'm going to read you a series of passages, and I want you to hear the story, the progression of the story behind it. Obviously, for time, I can't read the whole thing, but we're going to go through a lot of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so I'm going to kind of think of it as cliff notes of this, uh, this Pentateuch, if you will. So we're going to talk about the 
the key points that go along it. And what I want you to do is I want you to listen as that happens. So we're going to find out why they were enslaved. Why they're, we know why they're in Egypt now. Why they were enslaved. And just given a tiny little window into what that looked like. And then because of that, because of that pressure, we're going to see them cry out to God calling for his help because they remember the faithfulness that God had to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And then they're going to be delivered. So we've all heard the story of Moses and the delivery, the ten, ten plagues on Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea. But it doesn't take them long as they get through that, as they've been released from this bondage, for them to start complaining. We're really good at that, aren't we? They start complaining and then we're going to skip ahead, and when we get into Deuteronomy then, you're going to see God's response as to why they had to go through that. Now, just briefly, Exodus and Leviticus are, is the law to that group of people that left Egypt. When you get to Deuteronomy, see what happened is they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness, and that group of people that left Egypt died off. And so when you get to Deuteronomy, it's a retelling of that same law to their children, because these children are going to be entering into that land that was promised to Abraham. And so that's when we get to Deuteronomy. God is talking to their children. And so he's going to be able to shed some light on why they went through what they went through. And then we're going to see prophet Nehemiah just reflecting back on that same event for a continuity of, in the Old Testament. And so I want you to listen for that as I read through these. I'm going to go through a series of scripture passages. So let me start in Exodus 1, verse 6. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, and increased greatly, and multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal with them wisely, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us, and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses, which you may be able to see on the, the slide. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar, and bricks, and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Exodus 2.23, now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. And so at this point, they got their wish, Moses comes, God granted them a deliverer, and they were left out of Egypt. And so we're going to forward to Exodus 16. Exodus 16, 3. The sons of Israel said to them, would, they, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And now we're going to skip ahead to Deuteronomy 8, 3. 8, 3. He humbled you, Again, talking to his children, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you understand 
that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And then Nehemiah responds quite a bit later, 9.15 to 17. You provided bread from heaven from them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So let me break it down for you a little bit. So here we have a group of people that are struggling. They've been forced under a heavy yoke. They've got a lot of, they've been put under slavery. And so under pressure, they cry out to God. And so God listens. He hears them because they remember that God was faithful to their ancestors. And so God is faithful. He, re, he re, uh, sends a deliverer, Moses. Moses comes, takes the people out of the land. And so they leave Egypt. You know the story with the miracles. They leave, they go through the Red Sea, the Red Sea's parted, and not very long after that, they start complaining and saying, you know, I remember the good old days back in Egypt, the good old days. You guys ever said that? I'm old enough to. I remember those days. And so because of that, because of their unfaithfulness, they were unwilling to move forward into the land as they were commanded to do. And because of that, they were given a 40-year loop, and so they had to walk around the wilderness until that generation passed away. And so then it was actually their children that ended up going into the land. Because as God had explained to their children, and, and I don't know about you, but I sure wish that I would be explained why I'm going through what I'm going through when I do, right? Well, God explained to their children, so they never got to hear it, but their children found out, you went through what you went through because you needed to learn a lesson. You needed to learn that you don't live on bread alone. It's not by food that we live. You live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that's what they were, that was the lesson that they were learning because, see, the nation of Israel was intended to be a nation of priests. You see, where they're located in Israel it was the center of all the trade routes. So as folks traveled from one major group to another, they ultimately went through Israel. And so God had appointed them to be a nation of priests so that they could show God to the world. Well, in this example and and many others, they continued to fail. They failed at that. They weren't able to do it. And it's easy for us as postmodern Americans to say we do it differently, right? I say that all the time. I say, you know, gosh, if I were in that situation, I would have obeyed, I would have listened, I would have gone into the land. But would we really? Because it's easy to say from, from our modern conveniences with air conditioning and computers and the internet and cars and all these things, we have our comforts. We have Bibles, we have commentaries, we have seminaries and colleges like Lancaster Bible College. We have internet Bibles, we have YouTube where we place our own messages every Sunday. Yet, according to Pew Research, 35% of us, one in three, 
reads our Bibles at least weekly, not daily, weekly. 45%, almost half of us never read our Bibles, seldom or never read our Bibles. And four in 10 say that reading the Bible is an essential part of Christianity. Four in 10 say that reading our Bible is an essential part of Christianity. So I say that, yeah, I would do it differently. Well, I see what Peter did on the night that Jesus was crucified, and he said the same thing, didn't he? And I think that I really fit into that same category, that I'd like to say that I would do it, but when push comes to shove, I probably would have responded just the same as the Israelites. So how about the one who can? So we talk about Jesus in the wilderness. I'm going to read from Matthew 4.1, which was our scripture reading, one of them. So how did Jesus handle the same temptation? So in Matthew 4, so Luke and Matthew 4 both uh, give the same account. So I'm going to read from Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, I'm going to stop for a second and ask you, after 40 days of fasting, no food, you're starving like the ladies on the island, what would you have said and done if you had that power? If you could actually command a stone to become bread, what would you have done? What would I have done? Because, yes, Jesus was fully God, and so we we acknowledge that, but he was also fully man. He was fully human, and he was desperately hungry, like those ladies, like the Israelites in Exodus. Well, he responded, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Well, there's a quote here from D.A. Carson and I'm going to read to you, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about that, comparing them. So Jesus' fasts of 40 days and nights reflected Israel's 40-year wandering. Both Israel's and Jesus' hunger taught a lesson. Both spent time in the desert preparatory for their respective tasks. The main point is that both sons were tested by God's design to prove their obedience and loyalty in preparation for their appointed work. The one son failed but pointed to the son that would never fail. In this sense, the temptations legitimized Jesus as God's true son. This is why we follow Jesus. So just as you've heard Jesus called the second Adam, okay? So Adam comes on the scene, and that's absolutely true. Adam comes on the scene, he's tempted by sin and fails. Jesus comes on the scene, is tempted by sin, and overcomes it. He overcomes sin entirely. Well, in a similar way, as I mentioned about the, the nation of Israel, their role was to be a kingdom of priests. They were to show God to the world around them. Israel failed. Jesus succeeded. And so it's because of that, because he could do what we could not, that's why we follow him. Because he gave the example for what we can do through him. And these temptations are just one example of this. There's certainly many more. So what is our call to action So we know Jesus did that. He's fully God. What's our call to that? Well, we're called to hunger after God. We're called to hunger after God. Matthew 5, 6 said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
John 6.35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And finally, Matthew 6, 16 to 18, which you probably have in your bulletin. Jesus is talking, and in verse 16, he says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will will reward you. And so, what we see here is, we know that Jesus fasted. We saw that in a couple chapters earlier in verse, chapters 4. He fasted for 40 days before being tempted. And there's several other places in Scripture where he fasted, but I think you get the idea. Well, in verses 16 and 17 both, he says, whenever you fast. He doesn't say, if you fast, if you think about fasting, if fasting is convenient. He says, whenever you fast, do this. You see, fasting raises our spiritual temperature because as we commune with the living God, because it ties together our physical body with our spiritual body, the material with the immaterial, because we can sense hunger, right? That's a blessing from God. We, We can sense that. We know when that's coming. And so when we fast, that ties together our spiritual world with that physical hunger where our spirit has a hunger for God. We don't always sense it because we're not as in tune with it. But when we fast, it ties those two together. And so the idea of fasting is to remind us of Deuteronomy 8.3, of Matthew 4.4. We don't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You see, if you're anything like me, I went for years, I've been a Christian for almost 30 years now, and for a lot of years, I never understood the purpose of fasting. For me, it just seemed like a hunger strike where you just are told you, you don't eat for a day or two days or whatever the, the period of time is. And so you just kind of slug through it and you just, you know, I think they invented the term hangry after for me, okay? If anybody can relate to that, right? And so it doesn't always go well because I didn't understand the purpose behind it. But see, when you fast, it's tying that physical to the spiritual with this Deuteronomy 8.3, We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Turn up spiritual temperature by hungering for it. I encourage you to fast. You know, as a young Christian, I hungered for God. I really did. You know, I don't know if any of you can relate, but when you first get saved, you first accept Jesus, you're, you know, you're kind of excited about it, and you're taking time, and you're reading, and you're praying, and you're just doing all these things. Well, I don't know about you, but as life goes on, I get busy, and that becomes less important. I don't like to fast. I don't know about you. It's not fun. But what it does do is it helps to raise our spiritual temperature as we, as we yearn for God, as we hunger for God. It teaches us that. So I mentioned I'm busy. Are you busy? Do you guys know what I mean? Life gets busy, right? 
Well, I think the enemy uses that comfort, that busyness to build inertia, and it prevents us from doing those things. Because again, according to Pew, two-thirds of Americans identify as Christian. That's good, right? 66% of Americans identify as Christian. 25% identify as born-again Jesus, uh, born-again believers in Jesus. So about one in four people identify as born-again Christians. Yet I would have to ask, surely a quarter pound of salt would have an impact on a pound of meat, wouldn't it? And so how, what impact are we having on our society around us? And so as I talk through apathy, um, the call to inaction, here's what, here's what that means to me. It means indifference. And so here's some... Uh, meanings from a dictionary Bible theme. So, apathy, indifference, a neutral attitude to God, indifference toward God, no desire to seek God, and refusal to heed God's Word. I'd like to play a song for you. I know that's a little unusual, but I felt this really captured the idea well. So I'm asking you to bear with me. It's a Christmas song, actually. So related to my name, that fits well. I, enjoy, I like it especially well, right? But it uses this term of sleeping to represent the idea of apathy, where we're indifferent, where we're not paying attention to the things of God. The song is named uh, By Casting Crowns While You Were Sleeping. I want you to read the lyrics as the music washes over you. I want you to read that and follow along if you would, please. Go ahead. like another silent night Above your deep and dreamless sleep A giant star lights up the sky And while you're lying in the dark There shines an everlasting light For the king has left his throne And is sleeping in a manger tonight Tonight Oh Bethlehem, would you have missed while you were sleeping For God became a man and stepped into your world today Oh Bethlehem, you will go down in history as a city with no room for its key While you were sleeping While you were sleeping 
Mary shivers in the cold Trying to keep the Savior warm Born among the animals Wrapped in dirty rags Because there was no room for him In the world he came to save Oh Bethlehem, would you have missed while you were sleeping? For God became a man and stepped into your world today. Oh Bethlehem, you will go down in history as a city with no room for its key while you were sleeping. While you were sleeping United States of America Looks like another silent night As we're sung to sleep by philosophies That save the trees and kill the children Shouted across the eastern sky For the bridegroom has returned And has carried his bride away in the night In the night America, what will we miss while we are sleeping? Would Jesus come again? And leave us slumbering where we lay America, will we go down in history As a nation with no room for its king Will we be sleeping? Will we be sleeping? United States of America Looks like another silent night mm. That song always gets me. Will we have room for our king when he returns or will we be caught sleeping? Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. I think we have a crisis of that today. I'm going to call the worship team up, and as they do, some of you may be old enough to remember Paul Harvey, and now for the rest of the story. Several days later, and they still hadn't found enough food to be sustainable. Living on less than 200 calories per day for almost two weeks, the entire tribe was feeling their energy wane. Each member was losing a concerning level of weight. Several members of the tribe had already left the island, and a few of those who remained were in bad shape physically as they suffered from dehydration and extended malnutrition. After a tearful tribal meeting to discuss options, they decided their only option right now was to eat their newfound pets, sage and onion. A few members were still opposed to the idea, but desperation exhausted all other options. 
So they took the piglets one by one in their arms, and with more tears, they pinned them to the ground and took the life of each one. They cooked them over an open fire using some wire mesh they had found on the beach, giving the ladies each thousands of life-saving calories that lifted their physical conditions and their spirits. They started hunting with intention, and the next day they found and took an adult hog and a boa constrictor, and from that point on, they were able to hunt and gather enough food and water to sustain them through the rest of the six-week journey. You see, all they needed was to be hungry enough to use the resources at their fingertips. We have so many resources at our fingertips, but are we taking advantage of them? How hungry do you and I have to get to take advantage of that, what's right in front of us? Because we are ambassadors for Christ in this world, and our mission is to love God and love people. What's lulling you and I to sleep, preventing us from doing this fully? I'd encourage you to fast to find out. When you do, though, don't treat it like a hunger strike. Remember Deuteronomy 8.3, we do not live on bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. In God's economy, hunger is greater than apathy. Thank you.